Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast about UK-German friendship, past, present and future. My name is Oliver Schramm. I'm the head of the Department for Economic and Global Affairs here at the German Embassy in London. Welcome to this month's episode of our podcast. This time we're looking at the connection between the UK and Germany from a climate perspective. Our two guests are both international policy experts with in-depth knowledge of German and British climate actions. Our first guest, Dr. Susanne Dröge, is Senior Fellow in the Global Issues Division at the German Institute for International and Security Affairs. Susanne focuses on topics such as linkages between climate policy and trade, green economy and carbon pricing. Our second guest is Jennifer Tollmann, a British-German environmental scientist. She leads the European climate diplomacy work of the European think tank E3G, which is headquartered in London and aims to steer the global transformation. Susanne, Jennifer, you both are renowned experts on international climate policy and diplomacy. We would like to hear from you about where we stand in international climate negotiations four months before COP26 and just a few weeks after the G7 summit. How to accelerate climate action? How could bilateral cooperation support the greening of our economies? Today's conversation is moderated by Christoph Prössel, the UK and Ireland correspondent for Germany's ARD Radio. Christoph, thanks a lot for being part of this. The floor is yours. Thank you. And a very warm welcome from my side. Uh, I'm happy to discuss with you, Jennifer and Susanne, today this session, which is quite interesting. We are, from my point of view, on a crucial point. Um, after the G7, before COP26, I came back by train with uh, from the G7 meeting with 25 pages in my hand, uh, a lot of subjects uh, on those pages and a lot of interesting points regarding climate policy. I just want to make a very, very, very brief um, summary of uh, what I think were the main points of this uh, G7 summit. Um, uh, no more carbon emissions from 2050 on. Well, okay, an affirmation of uh, previous declarations. More money for poorer countries to deal with transition to a greener economy has also been decided a few years ago, but the industrialized countries until now failed to stick to their commitments to pay the 100 billion per year. And then we have the point phasing out of fossil fuels, but uh, well, there is no year mentioned in the declaration. Those three big points from my point of view are a good starting point. Jennifer, your quick estimation, was the summit a success for the climate? I think it was building the foundations, but we still don't have a house, uh, let alone a roof that would actually shelter us from the impacts of climate change. So I think there were some really good signals, a quick, a quick, good, bad, ugly. I think you're right. The G7, the UK is positioned, the G7 family is an engine to keep 1.5 in reach. I think that's very novel for the G7 as previously a purely economic space. So I think that in and of itself is a solid foundation. Um, I also think that 
while we don't necessarily have an end date on domestic fossil fuels, which will definitely need to come in future G7s, we did see an end to international coal financing from the G7, as well as from South Korea. And that is fairly significant, given the fact that that means that China is the last man standing on international coal finance. Um, And I think that will resonate throughout the UN General Assembly, throughout conversations with China. That's significant. There are some bad slash missed opportunities. We definitely needed to see more on credible aligned green recoveries. Not really a peep there. Um, A lot of fluff, not a lot of substance. Um, And then there's the ugly. And for me, that's really the under-delivery on on the solidarity elements across the board. And I think this is what's really dangerous as we look towards COP26. We saw an under-delivery, a lack of clarity on vaccines. We saw a lack of clarity on how the the gap, how the 100 billion, this this commitment that was made nine years ago, 100 billion to support developing countries, which really is the bare minimum, is going to be delivered. We only really saw Germany and Canada step up. And a lot of those announcements were unclear until much later in the process. Um, And finally, we saw this big, beast of a build back better for the world initiative for green infrastructure finance. Now, I think this initiative is much needed. We we know that there is currently already an 850 billion infrastructure gap just in terms of financing for clean energy infrastructure that would be needed to shift developing countries onto cleaner pathways. But there's no money behind it. So once again, it's a promise with no clarity on how it'll be, li- be delivered when we already have other promises hanging empty. So I'd say could be better. Susanne, before before I would like to hear your point of view on the on the on the declaration, I would like to start with the COP26. I mean, to draw a line from G7 to COP26, it um, might be important to to explain to our audience how important is COP26. What is what is the main point to mention? The COP26, first and foremost, is has, has was supposed to take place last year so it's it's really urgent to to make the point that it still exists because this is a this is this story that's being told here is that every meeting of the uh, parties to the convention on climate change is an important meeting and we're again in a phase where important decisions have to be taken and we have a paris agreement in place that is you know it has some elements in it that need regular attention and if the attention drops then it's a problem to get the deliveries on these processes one is for instance to scale up the uh, the ambition on climate action the other is to be transparent of what countries do so given that we didn't have a cop last year we definitely need one this year so this is the first message then the message is uh we have a new us government and i think it really wants to achieve some successes as well. And I think so, so the good thing about the postponement was actually that this year we know who, who's uh, in charge in the US. And I think we have now a COP uh, that is, is, is really surrounded by a summary that enables more, yeah, more power and probably better decisions to be made. But the devil's definitely in the detail. And do you think we have a good starting point now when you look on the outcome of G7? Well, you know, we should not overrate the role of the G7. I mean, it is an important meeting, and I think the important comes from the the constellation I just mentioned. It is is a meeting of seven big powers, but they cannot walk the talk alone. I mean, they just... You know, there are seven, but we're heading for G20, which is much more important because the G20, the big 20 economies, including the emerging economies, 
in other industrialized countries, they have the majority of emissions well, for which they are responsible. And so the G7 is one element in bringing up the momentum that G20 needs to even raise further and then ending with a COP with 190 plus countries where the spirit is the biggest powers, the G20 are willing to deliver on their promises. And as Jennifer mentioned, the money already, there's a lot of distrust at the moment that this delivery will take place. So we're not there yet. I mean, the, the April summit by um, President Biden plus the G7 is now according to plan. And that's a good news. I would like to go a bit into the details, uh, Jennifer. Let's let's put for a moment Boris Johnson and his climate policy in the focus. Um, what are the plans of the British government to achieve their goal of reduction of carbon emissions uh, of 68 percent in 2030, 78 in 2035? That's a very good question. We've seen a lot of uh changing of minds on those plans. And I think one of the things that is increasingly missing in the UK is a concept for a domestic green recovery that would really accelerate that action. So I do think that there, there is a missing element there. I also think on the international stage, the fact that they have cut their overseas development assistance is really coming back to bite them, to be entirely honest, if you'll excuse an idiom, uh, because it makes them semi-credible at home and semi-credible internationally. And that is going to be one of their big issues going into COP26. I do think that some of the work that is being done off the back of the, you know, all of the, the legislative efforts uh, do make it slightly more credible. But I'll be very honest, my expertise is in the international space. So I'm probably not best placed to assess the, the, the devil of the details of the UK plans. Uh, but I am very happy to comment on the devil of the details of the UK presidency plans. Have you an estimation there, Susanne? Is there in another way, another British way than the German way is? is? Do you see differences? Definitely there are a number of differences because what the UK government did in the past, and don't ask me for the exact numbers at the moment, but the, the point really is they, they implemented a, a budget approach. Um, there's a law, there was an early installation of a law, and there is a clear agenda where the numbers should be in the future. And that's why the 68 add up to this long-term plan um, to reduce emissions. Um, they decoupled the policy process a little bit from the scientific one in terms of that this committee, the Climate Change Committee, has a crucial role to play whoever governs the country. But of course, we see uh, twists and turns in that respect. But there's a clear agenda what to, what to achieve and there's a clear legislation um, in place. This is not comparable to what the Germans did in the past. We only have a legislation in place. Uh, well, we got it after the campaigning was in danger um, uh, around the European election for the parliament and the Fridays for Future movement made, made a twist towards the Green Party and gains. Also, across Germany, you could tell that the big parties um, were kind of shocked that the Green Party had so much support in the, in the, by voters. Now, and then after three legislation periods of the same grand coalition, a climate law was eventually, you know, established with some kind of weird logic in it that doesn't add up. There was no budget for emission reduction, nothing. It was just, you know, in order to have one. And now we have a dynamic, we see a dynamic coming up that is really interesting because the German decisions now have to 
have a backing. They need a backing like the US, uh, sorry, UK policy has already due to the budget and the climate change committee. And we're not there yet because we're in the middle of the election campaign. And we had a renewal of the climate law just because we had um, um, the court, the, the constitutional court in Germany ruled that this is not enough what's written in this law. It's totally against our article in the, um, in the constitution that um, says we have to protect our environment. The title of this um, podcast series is Staying Connected. I mean, is there an opportunity for Germans, for the German government, for the British government to learn from each other, Susanne? What is, what is your impression there? Uh, well, we all know why it says staying connected, because we had something called Brexit. Um, yes and no. I mean, this cooperation is so... It is, has such a long and successful history when it comes to climate policy cooperation. I mean, not even the Brexit can come and come in between. I think there are long-standing relationships in order to drive the international agenda forward. Of course, there are um, often the two need to arrange for what they want to do by, by the division of labor or where they just don't go along with each other. It's on the same, they're not on the same page, but still. In order to drive, for instance, the agenda forward, it is a long-standing um, experience and very successful story. And the Brits always pushed the Germans, really, because it's a much more flexible, flexible approach how to, to do climate policy while we are really stuck in a kind of time warp because we have these. If once something is established in Germany, forget about, you know, undoing it. It's simply impossible. We do reforms. Okay. But so the dynamic in the UK is a bit different from the German one, but I still feel that the Brexit couldn't do much harm when it comes to the relationship. It does harm when it comes to the attention it takes to take care of what the contracts are and now how to get the act together when it comes to the climate um, uh, policy instruments like the emissions trading and all this keeps people very busy while the, the true problems are, are obvious and we don't really have the time to sort out these things. So I think in general, I have a, I have a, I'm very confident that this cooperation will be fruitful. For me, it was very interesting to see uh, Boris Johnson at the G7 meeting in Well, explaining to the world, global Britain, uh, we have an agenda which is worldwide and uh, climate action is part of this, uh, Jennifer. Do, do, do you see that, that, that climate uh, action has a, a new role, is more important than years ago? Is that probably something that, well, Johnson achieves I definitely think that climate is increasingly being centered in the UK's foreign policy projection. And I think they're, they're right to do that. Um, it is going to be one of the major challenges of the coming decade. They, they have really worked towards decoupling their emissions from their economic growth in that they are very much a, a role model for many other countries, um, including in the way that they They have, you know, not necessarily in the way that they manage their coal phase out, but in the fact that they have phased out of coal. Um, but The question is, is it a cohesive picture? Like, does putting climate front and center gel with the fact that you are cutting overseas development aid, not for climate, but for all of the climate complementary causes? That's a hard sell. Does the fact that you have chosen to use your G7 to position more 
anti-China and prioritize the, the fact that you are building a coalition against China rather than a coalition for climate really lead to credibility on climate as a central element of your foreign policy. I think that is something that the UK will struggle with as it goes into full global Britain mode. And those are inconsistencies that will have to be addressed, particularly if you're going to be a coalition builder. Just to get clear on that point, you mean value-based foreign policy might be a problem for climate uh, policy at that point? I think it depends on what values you have. If your values are an open architecture, a rules-based international system that anybody who is willing to obey those rules can sign up to, then no, I don't think it's an issue because then it's then the ball is in China's court. It's about what China shows up. But if it's a, we need to exclude our systemic rivals at every moment possible, that becomes a bit more difficult because then your value isn't an open rules-based architecture. Then your value is we are pro-democracy, which again, not a bad thing, but makes it a lot harder to build a coalition against a, go a global challenge. So it's navigating those inconsistencies. I would like to come to a further point, uh, financing um, climate politics. Um, What was the problem in the past? Why did the, the big countries, the industrialized power, uh, countries, uh, didn't pay what they agreed to, to, to pay? Jennifer, probably you start. I mean, they just, I think this is again a kind of common responsibility issue because you have this, this goal, this number, the 100 billion, but you don't have clarity around who's going to take what part of it. And then it becomes a game of chicken. Um, and at the minute, it's not seen as a race to the top. It's seen as, okay, I guess we'll be pressured to do a bit more, but only if this person moves. And that really isn't helpful because in a way, I actually think this is a good moment to think about the way that we're approaching vaccines. The clear narrative on vaccines is you need to give money for the developing world because if they're at risk, we're at risk. We are all in this together. And I think on climate, even though we're already seeing climate impacts mounting, you're not set, you're not yet seeing that same understanding of if climate impacts hit the developing world, that has consequences for us as well um, outside of the climate and security space. And so this idea that investing in climate action in the rest of the world keeps you safe and is the thing that in the long term will allow you to have climate safety and your citizens to have climate safety, that isn't an understanding we have yet. It's still this view that it is part of charity. It's part of development assistance. And it really isn't because as much as we need to do our absolute utmost to get our emissions under control and reduced, we're less than like the G7 is less than 30% of global emissions at this point in time. If you don't invest in cleaner development pathways elsewhere, your climate safety is at risk as well. And I don't think that that's a conversation that we're having yet. And I think that's been a big part of the problem. It's been an obligation rather than an investment in our own safety. Susanne, how can the countries, the G7, for example, persuade themselves to pay more, to come up to their uh, amounts they agreed on? Well, I think, first of all, it's also, at least in democracies, it's the parliaments who decide what money needs to be forked out and how to label it. And we had, when it started, it all started the finance debate, the real scaling up debate. We had tough decisions to make and whether or not to to yeah to relabel money that goes through development aid goes out to countries anyway and make it green money but in, instead of you know um increasing the real numbers uh then we had a period 
uh, where the US did not deliver. They promised 3 billion US dollars to the Green Climate Fund and delivered $1 billion. And now Biden could only or carry in that, for that matter, uh, could only promise $1.5 billion. And why? Because it's really difficult, also because of the pandemic, to give money to foreign countries. And you cannot explain that to the US Senate. Why, why support the UN? It's, it's a useless thing to have a UN in the first place. I'm just paraphrasing a and simplifying, but here there's a big reluctance. So we have two critical things. We have once for once the, 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 the problem that the domestic policymakers should sign up to money that goes abroad for a purpose they probably do not share. Um, and second, we have the problem that the accounting or accounting of what is climate finance with respect to 100 billion as a target is difficult. I mean, there are real, really good um, counting exercises and accounting, not accounting, but counting exercises. And we we saw that we could have achieved um, around 80, 80% of what, what has been aimed for from private and public sources. And I think the problem really is where to put the lever. And the lever is not only public money because it needs to be an incentive to invest more from the private sector in specific climate projects, and then take take that into account as well. But there's a there's a room to interpret what counts as climate finance and what doesn't. And also, we saw that there's a problem if Germany, for instance, who who really scaled up the financial amounts and did so again at the G7. If you want to channel that money quickly, you need good projects, and that's another thing. The recipients. The receiving end also needs to be ready to digest so much money in a short time period. So I'm not saying don't pay the money because it can't be digested. I'm saying this needs to be thought through until the final end where the money should make a difference. And I think this is this is all part of this accounting problem because sometimes things are not being accounted for, although the money is around. The last week was very interesting. I read a lot of uh, newspapers and... Um... I read about the wind energy sector, which needs to be reinforced in Britain and they want to be the number one worldwide. I read about uh, small nuclear power plants. Um, I would like to talk about technology. Do you think that there are um, interesting times uh, coming up that uh, Britain and Germany are able to develop and be um, uh, for new economies and, and, and learn uh, from each other in that sector? Or do you think that is, um, well, up to China and other countries? I don't know who wants to answer. Probably, Susanne, we, we could start with you. Yeah, maybe just to, to get could, uh, get my head around your question. Um, you're, you're referring to energy, technology, development and, and decarbonization after that. And, oh, um, well... Surely um, there are more similarities between the German and the British approaches when it comes to decarbonization than there are compared to China. Um, but energy policy always was, also before Brexit, a matter of national priorities and to Europeanize this and to make a difference also with market size and new technologies is always a tricky thing. We see that green hydrogen is a new kid in town and is being, well, it's talked into being because it doesn't exist 
get at the large scale that we need. So I think you, no matter whom you will ask, you will get always the answer of, yeah, yeah, we need to do green hydrogen together. But um, behind this buzzword is a lot of, well, <laughs> there's a hen and egg problem. You need to, you have to have a market size that matters and you have to have a very climate friendly way to produce that hydrogen and use it for particular sectors only because there are sectors that are hard to decarbonize or heavy industries being one. Uh, so sorting out these priorities could be a good way forward between the two countries they wouldn't make a big impression on China. For making an impression on China, you will probably have more market size. And that means you need probably this G7 again to, to scale this up. Also, like we saw with solar panels, you need an international demand for this kind of product. And the promise that the economies of scale will decrease quickly enough. So many unknowns, but I think... From uh, this point of view, I, you could even come up with other technologies. I think nuclear is, no, I don't think I know that nuclear is not an option for the Germans. So just, you know, don't spend time talking about it. It's just like that. Um, while um, the other solar and wind is definitely something where new technological innovations are needed too in order to, to make them even more productive. And I think this is a good idea to put uh, efforts together into this agenda. Jennifer, do you, do you see opportunities there? I do see some opportunities. I, I do agree with Susanna that it would probably be more fruitful in a G7 context, mainly because a lot of this is actually already happening in the EU-US context. So um, at the recent EU-US summit, there was an agreed green tech alliance. And I think that might be a space where a lot of this happens. And so in a way, it's about the UK finding a way in on this. And this is the issue of, of global Britain. You need to get in on the coalitions uh, because your market size in and of itself isn't sufficient to, to make you the accelerator in that space. So you need to be able to dock into the transatlantic alliance on that one. Um, I do also agree with Susanna that I don't think that green hydrogen is Really, really, really been thought through, particularly in terms of the grid, inf grid infrastructure that is needed, the investments that, that's needed in countries like Morocco, like the MENA region, essentially the broader EU connectivity strategy, how the UK docks into that or doesn't. And also the simple fact that these countries will also need that renewable energy for themselves. So I think there's a lot that's unexplored under this promise of green hydrogen. That doesn't mean we don't need it. It just means that we need to move it from being a political, uh, you know, show pony to actually being something that gets planned through with all of the grid infrastructure behind it and a clear assessment of how much it can deliver. But the one thing that I would add is it's not always about the new technology. We have a ton of the technology that we need to actually manage this transition. And a lot of times the barrier is actually social. The barrier is how do you do vast ranging um, energy efficiency measures? How do you replace gas boilers with heat pumps. And that is an area where dialogue could definitely happen because in that, the UK and Germany have a much more similar architecture in that they already have pre-existing built environments. China is still building a ton of its own infrastructure, so they don't have to retrofit. But figuring out how you manage retrofits, what are the best practices in that? It's not as fun. It's not as shiny, but it's actually what will accelerate the transition. And I do think a dialogue there could be really, really worthwhile. The big question for me is how do you loop the EU into that conversation? Because it's unlikely to just be a Germany-UK conversation. 
I would like to discuss one last point with you. It's the civil society. I mean, we see um, worldwide movements like Fridays for Future. We see uh, big NGOs uh, working cross-border like Greenpeace. Do you see their bonds, strong bonds uh, regarding uh, climate, climate policy um, on a civil society sector? And do you think that the society yeah, has, has um, advantages from that? Susanne, probably you would would start. Yeah, I mean, I I do not follow this very closely. I think that we we see that this this kind of movement is connected internationally. It's very well connected due to social media. We have seen that Extinction Rebellion, which is a I mean, if I'm not wrong, a UK invention is kind of um, giving a home to those who want to be more radical. While Fridays for Future is giving a home to those who are mostly young people who who want who benefit from not feeling alone with their the issues so i wouldn't see this as a i mean whether i don't know whether you're asking for it but i i see this not as a uk german kind of link that is so special to the two countries it's rather something that is interesting from a from the point of view that climate change is really now being felt i mean the, the the warming has has manifested and that was something the older generation wouldn't have expected actually given that there was so much talking and talking and talking and obviously that was not enough and the next generation already realizes oh they consumed up all our space i mean all what we could you know really also would have liked to consume uh, fresh water and you know um biodiversity and uh, all the things that make life enjoyable, these are so limited now because of our overconsumption of the overconsumption of the previous generation and the climate change they caused. And I think this is this is a very strong message and that is unifying young people just because it's such a strong message and you can apply it in autocratic systems and also in, democ in democracies. And I think this is a unique thing about this. So in this respect, I would rather say, yeah, it's an interesting international societal thing. And I really myself would like to know where it's going to end. You cannot keep up the message that it's five to 12 for many years. So I need, it rather needs to end in some kind of constructive results. And I, I wonder whether that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. Do you agree, Jennifer? I do. I think the the youth voices are already well connected. That doesn't mean that kind of facilitating their exchange isn't a good thing. They are a driving force in the politics and the fact that climate is increasingly a cross-party issue in both the UK and Germany. Um, and I think, you know, enabling them to stay in exchange is really important. Um, I do think that there will be a sense of loss around uh, the Erasmus program and things like that. So I think uh, refreshed support programs are useful. There are two other actors that I really wanted to name that are non-governmental actors, but I think are really key here. One, I actually think is cities. We still have a lot of legacy city partnerships. Um, and I think maintaining those and making those a space to discuss what works and what doesn't work could actually be really powerful as we start having to shift into these, the social side of the transition. So I think creating space for those exchanges could actually be really helpful um, because the experiences are likely to be more similar than they're not. Um, and the second one is the financial se sector. 
the financial systems. Um, the city will remain a financial hub. And so making sure that there is active conversation between Frankfurt and London in terms of how the rules of the financial systems are greening and how cross-investment can happen and how products remain similar. I think that's just a really natural point of entry, though again, that would need to be interconnected into the EU governance systems because a lot of that is what's driving the greening of the financial system within the EU right now. But I think dialogues there could be really helpful, not the least because I genuinely feel that the city is a bit further along in its realization of the greening than Frankfurt is. So um, I, I do think some exchange there could be helpful. Very interesting aspect. I think we are at the end of this uh, podcast. Um, a lot of questions still to ask, but I think it was, was a very good uh, overview you gave. So thank you very much for this uh, conversation, for this discussion. Thank you.